Drive into left center, and what a play made by the rookie Brian O'Grady. Pitch. Oh, into right field. Brian O'Grady, first big league home run. Fly ball, center field struck well. Marisnik going back at the wall. Gone! Welcome back, Brian O'Grady. And welcome inside episode 59 of Breaking Bats, presented by Not For Long Media. My name is Justin Ayers. This week's episode features a fantastic conversation with Cincinnati Reds play-by-play broadcaster John Sadak. This is one of the best I think I've ever been a part of. John's story is incredible, and I think it will really resonate with all of you guys. Uh, We did about an hour, we covered a ton of ground, but... Before I send it to the interview, be sure to check out the Not For Long Media family of podcasts. There is something for everybody. Uh, the Colin Thompson Show, Two Girls, One League, and Ah Gs with Harry Mays and Jason Martinez. Give them all a listen. Uh, so, without further ado, here is the man himself. Here is my conversation with Cincinnati Reds play-by-play man, John Sadak. Enjoy. All right, I am now joined by a very special guest, John Sadak. He is the play-by-play voice of the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, John, thank you so much for hopping on here tonight. You got it. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So your journey to, to get to where you are today is fascinating. I, I want to take it back, though. Uh, so I've gotten a chance to talk to a lot of broadcasters on here. We were just talking about Tom McCarthy's been on here a little bit. Um, and a lot of them had that itch to like be behind a microphone and be calling games from like a young age. When did you make that transition, though, from wanting to play sports to wanting to call them? Uh, for me, the announcing thing came late. Um, as a young kid, I, I did want to act. I would ask my mom all the time about to, the chance to go to auditions. Um, the first half of my childhood, I was in greater New York City. Uh, the back half, I was still not that far away, a train ride away. Um, and it, it, that never wound up happening. I did some theater like in high school. Uh, by the time even I got to middle school, I, I really cemented more in the math and sciences. Uh, my only varsity letter in high school was on the math team. I played everything and I was terrible at everything. I liked it, but I wasn't very good at it. Uh, so I never thought about working in sports. It just never never clicked as a real opportunity. Um, and so I was set on majoring in astrophysics when I took my SAT. And uh, so based on your score and your uh, desired major, that's how you get your college letters, or at least you did in the mid-90s. Um, so all my college letters came from places like RPI and that, that were astrophysics. Um, and it was halfway through that senior year of high school that I kind of decided, I don't know if I want to do that. Um, it was early internet AOL, but there wasn't a lot of information. I remember reading one of those giant career books they would have in the library that looked like an old phone book. And, uh, under the astrophysics, uh, section, it said, well, median salary was like 60 grand a year, which was very good, but not amazing. You'd have to get a terminal degree. You're going to have to get a doctorate. Even with scholarship help, I'm going to come out with some form of debt. And the more I learned, I realized that uh, the nerdy research that I'd want to do, that I thought was fun, you don't really do. You you do that maybe one week every two years. And most of the rest of the time, you're soliciting for grant funding, you're teaching, you're doing something else to allow that opportunity for you to be a small sliver of a giant team enterprising in some research. And I said, "I, I don't know if I want to do that and be in college until I'm 25, 26 years old. And uh, I was doing a presentation in my AP history class in high school on race relation in 20th century America. And at the core was, did Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier represent a changing America or influence a changing America? And so the seminal research article that I used for that piece was the Sports Illustrated on Arthur Ashe when he was named Sportsman of the Year in 1992. It was already an age dated piece then. It was an awesome piece. And about the, the racism that he endured and what he saw in Jackie. And, um, and by coincidence, in that same issue was this giant pullout on ESPN Sports Center. And it went beyond the anchors. And I love Sports Center. It was on in homeroom in high school every day. We would memorize all the catchphrases and who did what, and how many points did Jordan score. Um, and it also detailed the behind the scenes roles who's the director? What does he or she do? Who's the producer? Who's the graphics person? And there was a sidebar that included a lot of words about the production assistant, which was the entry level, make no money, work 90 hour weeks, do everything nobody wants to do. And that's when it clicked for me. I was a senior in high school and I read that job description and I said, that sounds awesome. You're around sports all the time. You just got to hustle. And if I'm pretty sure I could get that job eventually, 
I know it's not easy to get in, but if I keep knocking on the door, I could get that. And if I can get in, then I can prove myself and I could move up. And my dream would be to be on air, but recognizing the odds of that are not good, I'd be happy being the director or the producer or the AD or just to be around sports and make money doing that. Have that be my job, which I would do on my own anyway. I'd be watching all this stuff. And that's really when it clicked for me. When I went to college, I wanted to be a sports center anchor. And then I did that and I, I found it somewhat empty and predictable. It wasn't as engaging as I had hoped and wanted it to be. Uh, and then I did live games at my Division three alma mater and I loved it. You, you couldn't anticipate what was going to happen. You just had to react. It was all about your preparation and your instant processing of what was happening. And I thought it was a great challenge and fun. And I, I love the theater of live sport. That's fascinating. Did you take that same kind of research mindset, like you mentioned, wanted to be an, uh, what was it, astrophysicist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, did you take that same kind of mentality that like you would have used to prepare yourself for a job like that and apply it to the role of like preparing like game notes and learning about the players? Did you carry that with you to the profession that you ended up doing? Yeah, I think so. Eventually, um, you know, where I went to college afforded me great opportunity to do a lot of games. And I was around a bunch of talented, good people. Um, I don't think I learned as well or as early as I should have about the prep. I think I kind of on the fly on my own picked that up over time. Um, I think the young folks that come out today, especially at places that are, are known for that track, the Syracuse, Fordham, Northwestern, yeah. um, are more polished. Uh, what helped me late in college was reading a book called The Art of Sportscasting. And that's the first time that someone put into like real depth the type of prep to do to be best prepared for a game um, in defense of my collegiate self, while it was a, a national division three power, one of the commensurate, you know, things with being a D three, especially at that time is the game notes are like one page. There really isn't that much information. The only way you can do that is you, you have to just go to practice and talk to people, which I did do. Um, and I think that helped me learn that element of the skill set. Uh, but yes, I think progressively, eventually it did, uh, but maybe not, right at first it did help though i think with me eventually understanding how and why do people get jobs and what should you be doing to try to advance your career i, I do think in that regard yes that's fast yeah exactly because like it in like the in the line of work that you do and even just like me doing these podcasts and like having guests on like i think there's a peyton manning quote i'm gonna butcher it it's something along the lines of like i can't throw the ball farther than anybody but i can out prepare anybody mm -hmm. um so i think that's really where like people who like listen and watch and like, you know, follow along with what you do. I think that's where they'll realize that like this guy does his job at, you know, he, he, he like puts his time and his effort into it. And it really comes across into whatever you're doing. Um, I did have a question though, because I mean, just even just talking to you for the last like 15 minutes, like I, you have a great broadcaster's voice. I'm sure you get that all the time. Uh, there's people who maybe run into you on the street and maybe don't know who you, what you do for a living. Um, maybe that has been something that has came up a time or two. It's like, you know, you got a good voice. When did you realize that like, that was like a, a tool that you had in your tool bag? Um, to be honest, the voice didn't really stand out until I was several years in the calling games for, uh, Princeton and Delaware for uh, basketball. Uh, my voice was always good, I think. Um, and, uh, and doing a lot of high school theater, I learned how to project to some extent to, to be on stage and that helped. Uh, but the, the greater resonance came when I learned how to regularly constantly speak from my diaphragm, uh, which I'd always heard that turn of phrase and I'd never really understood what it meant and I couldn't do it. And, uh, and I would try to do it. Um, I never had the money to go hire a voice coach. So I was just doing games. And I can distinctly remember it was Princeton at Dartmouth on a frigid Ivy League night. And it was halfway through the first half. We had dropped our signal. I had to dial back in and reconnect. And I'm doing the game solo. And when we came back, I just, I did it. Like it just happened. And as soon as I did it the first time, I knew how to do it and I could replicate it every time. And I think that along with age, I, I think a lot of us, when we're in our you know late teens and early twenties, there's a younger sound that comes with that. Uh, I'm not a smoker. I'm not a heavy drinker. Those are techniques some broadcasters do purposefully to try to like, give themselves a thicker sound and, or an older sound, more mature, vibrant sound, a richer sound. Um, but for me, it, it really was that click moment. That's when I think uh, my voice went from a solid, you know, okay tool, like maybe like a, a 40 on the scout scale and then became a, a bigger tool that I could use. 
on the on the 80 out of 80 scouts still yeah scouts, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh Hey, it would have been fascinating to hear Jack Buck, though, if he never smoked cigarettes. Like, would he be where he was if he didn't have that growly, raspy voice? Like, you don't know. <laughs> a lot of the voices of uh, especially the last, you know, 60 plus years, um, that was part of the the syrup in the process was uh, cigarettes, <laughs> cigars, pipes and uh, and some brown water along the way. <laughs> it was a special ingredient. Yeah. For baseball back when you when you were growing up. Um so like one of the hardest things I feel like for anybody that like does anything where you're talking to a microphone is having to eventually go back and like listen to yourself to like make critiques and like, you know, try to get better that way. For a lot of people, it's like grading. It's like nails on a chalkboard trying to listen to your own voice. I think I've gotten better with that. But for a lot of people, it hasn't. Are you one of the people that like, did it take you a while to be able to like comfortably listen back to the sound of your own voice? I still can't do it comfortably. I still, <laughs> I hear every mistake. I hear everything that I'd like to do over again. Um, and to be honest, that kind of spills into if I, I tell young enterprising announcers this all the time, that my only professional regret, not to say I haven't made other mistakes, I've made a ton of mistakes and I still will. But I think I kind of needed to make those and I couldn't have forecasted the, the alternatives or the domino effect of it. But the one I should have known better and done differently earlier is I should have been more aggressive and more self-confident. Um, the, the more I do this and I tell this to young folks the more I think your demo, your example work almost doesn't matter. If it's amazing, yes, it does matter. And if it does, then you don't need to solicit folks like me for advice. You're going to have rampant opportunity. You're going to get a job. Um, if it's terrible, it probably doesn't matter because I don't know if there's enough work that you can put in to get that much better. Most of us are shades of gray and all of us are flawed and decision makers that listen to stuff don't necessarily hear what each of us hears in our own work. You know, what we hear is a mistake or awful, or I need to change this. They might actually like, or totally not notice. Uh, and that kind of clicked for me. I was in my mid later twenties and I started seeing more and more people that were my peers uh, that I did not think were as good as me, or I didn't think were good at all getting jobs. And uh, how was this happening? How were they advancing? It was just like approaching the hottest person at the bar. Just go for it. And if you do it often enough, eventually you'll learn what works for you in terms of how you sell yourself and what your approach is. And you'll have a hit. You'll you'll connect with somebody. Um, and that's really what I think all of life is to some extent is connecting with people, getting someone to like you, what they like about you, why they like you. You can't roadmap that. You can't control that. Um but yeah, so to your question, I still don't comfortably do that. I think you need to. I think young announcers, I think all of us to some extent need to check ourselves. I think as you get older and you do, you have enough reps, it's more kind of uh, checking the oil from your friends. Uh, I, I think we can kind of, there can be a wash of ourselves that we might not then pick up on. You're using this crutch word or I wouldn't have phrased it that way. So I have friends that are announcers. Some are big league, some are in the minors, some are doing mid-college, some are doing high level. And I'll send them a clip where I'll ask them, hey, can you listen to this inning of this game? I, I think I screwed this up or I think I did well on this. What do you think? And, uh, and they'll shoot me straight. I know that like they're going to call me out if like, John, that was terrible. Or if they say it's good, then I, I believe them because I know they'll tell me when it's terrible. That's interesting to hear that even like you've been calling games for years and like, you know, you, you've been in your current role for a little bit now. It's, it's fascinating to hear you still say like, hey, like, what can I do better? Or like, you yeah. know, try to be. Yeah, I mean, like I, for, I know me personally, going back to myself, like I have people go back and listen to what I do. Crutch words like um, I got to get better at that. But, it, it, you know, it could be one of those things where. Well, like you mentioned earlier, where people who listen to it may not even notice it as much as me. But if I go back and I put the headphones on, and I listen to a podcast, uh, it's going to be a lot of, dear God, stop, stop saying like every five seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it's always a process. I think you always need to be checking yourself and trying to improve. Um, yeah. Even like right now with going into this 2023 season, I love the pitch clock. I think it's awesome. I, I think it was overdue. I think it's having a lot of good effect. It is affecting broadcasts. I had a small text thread with a handful of friends that are doing games at various levels at various places. And uh, some are TV, some are radio, some are more pre-post. And I, I asked them, do you see an impact? And almost all of them said, yeah, you got to be tighter on your stories. 
Um, you you got to get to them earlier. You have to bow and get out of them sometimes more often. You might have to tell the same story more than once because there's so much ball and play action. You have to be more selective. And, uh, and that's good. I, I think just like the players, I mean, they're the ones really competing, have to adjust playing the game. We have to make that same adjustment. And I think you always need to be aware of that. I'm so glad you brought up pace of play and, and you know, the pitch clock and how it's impacting like your, your profession at broadcasting, because I, I haven't watched too many spring training games yet this year, but I, I've seen the time total of like two twenty, two hours, 15 minutes. That's down a lot. Baseball is usually a three hour ordeal. And I feel like for so many like great broadcasters, it was kind of like what you're saying with the art of like telling great stories, great orders, like, like Vin Scully, like, how do you think Vin Scully and his like way to to tell stories and remember things? How do you think he would have fared with uh, an 18 second pitch clock and you have to like you know approach it from a different angle? Like that's that has to be hard and challenging for what you have to do. I think honestly, for men of his generation, it's probably somewhat easy because he did it for so long that he worked in an era where that naturally happened. What the pitch clock is doing is making the game act like it did in the 70s, essentially. Um, by pace of play. Like if you ever watch any, like go watch an old game on YouTube, it's basically the pitch clock without the pitch clock, which is what this will be. I think it's already becoming that. Reds had back-to-back games on the weekend without a single violation between the two teams. It just, it already kind of naturally has sunk into that rhythm. Um, I, I would share with you without naming names that some of my mentors or those I look to for advice that are a generation or so older than me that have been doing this a long time at the big league level, when I asked them in advance of my first big league innings, what should I be thinking of? What should I be aware of? Um, and I was kind of looking for like a, go get them. You're great. I didn't hear that. <laughs> Instead, I heard, uh, John, the game sucks right now. It's really slow. Not a lot of stuff is happening. Have Phil. Be ready to either say nothing or to have something else to say because it's a long time between pitches. Uh, so I think for somebody like Mr. Scully, who's an all-timer, he would do great with anything. I, I almost think it would be more familiar like, and I think it would be energizing. I, and I think for, for us that came up with a slower brand generally, even in the minors um, I think on the whole, it's going to be a good thing because there are times where it truly was filler. Like we're filling time. This is good. We know what we're losing. We're losing the hitter adjusting his glove 17 times. We're losing the pitcher doing a giant circle around the mound, big sigh, shoulder slump. I'm not losing anything. It's some ninth innings, yes, that can add and ratchet to some drama. But on the whole, we're gaining baseball. Real baseball moments are happening. It's it's fascinating. You're right. I I that's I never even thought of it from that perspective. Because you're right, that's all I know is is three hour plus games. Three if it's three hours, that's like a light, like, oh wow, this thing really sped by. But so much of like the baseball, I remember because I watched a lot of Orioles games. It was like Gary Thorne and Jim Palmer. They're talking about an old Earl Weaver story, and they could probably get through two stories between the between pitches. Like that's it, it does take a, a long time. Um, but like, how important is that aspect of the game, though? Like, obviously, you know, the, you know, balls and strikes is just a small part of it. But like, being able to tee up your color analyst and be able to get in and out of stories, like that's that's probably probably as as important as like all right, two ball, one strike count. Uh, yeah, yes, I would say so. I think the number one thing that always has to be the priority is the game itself. People are watching for the game, you know, what's happening in the game. And I think the brighter the spotlight we can shine on this incredible generation of players that are super athletic, super talented, uh, very fun to watch, have dynamic personalities is a good thing. Uh, what we're going to lose, we're going to lose the, the extra replay of the home run. We're going to lose the coming back from break, showing a 20-second video of something or a still image and a longer narration bleeding into the at-bat. I don't think that's a big deal. I think we can still tell the stories. We just have to do it in a tighter fashion. Get to the meat faster. Uh, make sure your preamble is, is spun and wound tightly um, and have feel for and be watching the game. I, I think on the whole, it's just going to engage us in the game more and I think the game is great. I think we have awesome talent playing this game right now. So I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I just have to adjust my mindset and get out of, you know, long storytelling time. Because, hey, sometimes when, the, you know, when the, my favorite team is getting blown out, I'll stick around and watch the game, even if they're losing by 10, just to hear, like, what stories are being told. <laughs> it's always yeah, – it, 
on TV, I think that's still going to happen too. Like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Reds had a, an ugly game in the in this stage of spring where the opposing the uh, the, the pitching half innings for the Reds, the opposing offense, it was, they were slugfests. It was long, laborious, a lot of guys on base, a lot of walks, and then the inverse was the opposite. The Reds were going quickly. Um, on those days when your team is down, your team announcer, your team's down ten runs in the fifth inning. You don't need to say it's TV. You don't need to say every pitch. If you want to use that opportunity to then tell a story that's totally unrelated to the game that shows personality and has, that's exactly the time to do it. But you don't tell that story when it's a one run game in the eighth. And, and it's just having that kind of feel. I, I, I think we're still going to have windows to do that. They just won't be as many and they'll, they'll be more, there'll be more substance to them. They won't be fill as often. They'll actually be designed entertainment. Absolutely. Uh, so I mentioned my favorite broadcaster of all time is Gary Thorne. He's the best. Um, growing up, though, because baseball is like the soundtrack of summer. It's just like you, I could get nostalgic, you know, thinking back to games and watching with my dad. Like growing up for you, who are some of the people that like broadcast voices that you think back to? You're like, dang, that was he was like one of my favorites. Um, so my favorite single sports team growing up was the New York Rangers hockey team. So the the broadcast team of Sam Rosen and John Davidson especially that 93-94 season when they won the Cup. I, I probably watched 60 games in their entirety that year. I, I adored that team. And I had a chance to meet Sam many years later, who was such a kind, gentle soul, was incredibly nice to me. <clears throat> um, but I, I think it varied by sport for me. Um, and I think even before I, I had interest in doing games, I recognized that like uh, uh, I did enjoy Bob Costas a lot. I liked how smart he was how um, aware he was of history. Um, and, and I love the fact that he could do multiple sports that he did, you know, he's doing the NBA finals and he's doing the world series. I, I thought that was really cool. Uh, growing up in the greater New York area, a man who did more studio work, but did some play-by-play now and then uh, Al Troutwig, who uh, later did a lot of gymnastics on NBC. Uh, he was a, a big part of my childhood because I grew up Yankees, Knicks, Giants, Rangers, and uh, three of those four teams were on MSG Network, and he was part of all three broadcast crews. And I thought he had one of the coolest jobs in the world because here are three of my favorite teams, and he announces for all three of them in some capacity. Um, but then uh, as I got more into wanting to work in the industry, I think I started to recognize more and more individual voices that were great at their respective sport and medium. Uh, in my opinion, in my lifetime, Al Michaels is the greatest TV NFL play-by-play voice. Uh, Keith Jackson's probably number one on college. Marv Albert is probably number one for me on the NBA. Um, and college basketball, it's probably Iron Eagle for me. Um, and there are many others that I adore and I think are fantastic. Uh, but I, I would start to narrow the focus more on uh, this announcer in this particular sport, in this particular medium, is just dynamite. And I, I loved it. That's great. Yeah, it's everybody can probably rattle off like the people like you did, like their own personal favorites. You you do kind of develop like that like tendency to like if if it's a game you don't care about, but if it's like your favorite broadcasting crew is on the call, I'll tune in and just maybe like have it on in the background or something. I think yeah. I think everybody's kind of like that. Um in terms of like I mean you just listed some of the all-time greats there. What do you think separates good from great in terms of broadcasters? Uh I think feel is the number one thing. It's feel of the sport. So knowing the flow, knowing your analyst, um, yeah, the play-by-play role in TV to me is secondary. On radio, it's primary. You're, you're painting the pictures like you have to be the quarterback. Um, but in, in TV, it's more point guard. Uh, your job is to set up the analyst. The game is the number one star. The analyst is the number two star. And TV sportscasting is a team sport. So everyone on the crew, everyone in the truck, Every camera operator, all your audio people, the TD, you're all working as one. Uh, and you need to have that feel and awareness. And, and that's where I think many of those that are the greatest, uh, I would bet a ton of money, are with the same production folks every week. It's the same producer. It's the same director. They travel the same camera people. That, that They learn each other's tendencies so well. And there's a fluidity to how they work. Um I think on TV, being more minimalist is usually better. Uh, there are some TV play-by-play guys who talk more that I think are very good. Uh, Kevin Harlan, 
words per minute. If you read awful announcing in the NFL, he's usually number one, number two. I think he's amazing. Um, but as a general rule, especially in the biggest moments, the biggest games, TV is captioning. TV is taking those pictures and underscoring them in some way that either emphasizes what's happening, uh, puts it in perspective, or gives a nugget or something that's not seen. Um, and I think there are many different ways to do it. There are, there are men and women that do this with very varied styles that can be equally great. And that's part of the beauty in the journey is that it's far more art than science and that you're always in this Moby Dick pursuit for the perfect broadcast that it can't happen. Um, you, you talk to the greats. Yeah, I mean, you, you'll, you'll find easily quotes from Michaels, from Costas, from Mike Breen, from Ian Eagle, from Kevin Calabro, where if you ask them about their most famous or treasured calls, they'll say, yeah, you know, I, I kind of wish I'd said this instead, or I should have done this or, um, and there's beauty in that because it's very human. And, uh, and I think that's what sport is about. It's about the highest achievement of the human ability, which is still going to be uh, riddled with some form of failure or mistake. And that's okay because that, that's what being human is. How important do you think the, cause you mentioned this in, in one of your answers, it was like the idea of like laying out, letting the game breathe, or even just letting a big moment kind of speak for itself when you're doing the television version of it. Like how important do you think that is? Like, I always think of like Joe Buck talks about this where he says like, you know, he's not bigger than the game. If there's a big moment, he'll like call it and then just like lay out and just let like the ambient noise of the game kind of, you know, take over on TV. Um, is that something you, you consciously do in your broadcasts? Yes. Yes. Uh, I specifically, when I think of, uh, of baseball on most big home runs, um, I try to get out no later than as the guy's rounding first. And I try not to speak again until no earlier than the guy's rounding third. And then he kind of depends on the feel of the moment. Sometimes you say nothing until the next hitter stands in and the first pitch is delivered. Um, yeah. And I, I think that speaks to the weight of each moment. Um, and, and I think Joe Buck is an excellent announcer. Um, I, I think he, in many ways, he is, uh, he is this generation's version of Pat Summerall. I hear incredible overlap and similarity, especially in their, their, their football calls. And that's what Pat's known for. Um, you know, Summerall was, was very minimalist and got out of the way um, and had that understated nature in some of the bigger moments and then just let the pictures and the crowd sound carry. Um, but it depends, you know, sometimes you're doing a game on a Monday and there's 4,000 people in the stands and laying out might not be the best thing because it might yeah. not make the moment feel great. Um, and some of it depends upon who your partner is because some partners want to talk in those spots. Some don't, some want to move on. Some want to linger on it. Who's your producer? How many replays you getting? What are you going to be saying to it thereafter? Um, but yes, I think on the whole in TV laying out more is good. And I, I think that's one of the mistakes many of us make as younger voices is we feel the need to fill. It's something I still struggle yes. with. I think when I go back, if I see one consistent mistake, it's that I go too long too often. Um, but it's something that is natural. I think it happens for all of us. It comes with time. And specifically in baseball, most of us, uh, or many of us, I guess more accurately, called games in the minors for at least a certain span of time. The longer you're in the minor leagues, on a Monday in Kinston, North Carolina, and there's 72 people in the stands, you better fill because they're going to think you're off the air. The crowd mic isn't going to pick <laughs> anything up. Um, so you, you get these habits because going silent is bad. In the big leagues, it's the opposite. The din of conversation and ballpark sounds is its own symphony. Let that sing more. There's, there's nothing better. It, that's my least favorite thing about, especially during playoff time for baseball is pl like announcers that <laughs> fill that go too long. And it's also like trying to like examine, like, I just want to like hear like the 42,000 people screaming. I don't need to hear you trying to scream over them, which I feel like happens a lot during like national broadcasts. Um, so it's funny you brought that up. I, I will, you know, this might be a relic of like a, like another generation, but like signature home run calls. I feel like everybody back in the day probably had one. I don't really know that there's that many like broadcasters that are coming up and newer now, like have like a signature that you can put on a t-shirt or something. Are you somebody that like has a different one for each time or like, how do you approach a, a home run call? Yeah. So far I don't really have one. Um, I have for certain players from time to time and it's not every home run, but many of their home runs. Um, 
Uh, but I, I think that's something that has to happen organically. And my only critique of the, the blanket call for those that employ it, and it can have great heft and it can be a galvanizing, you know, uh, just idea for a fan base. It can be really cool. It can, uh, it can be warmly embraced. And so there are individual opportunities where it probably fits. But for me, if I have one blanket statement, I'm not really specifically speaking to or captioning that moment because everyone's going to be a little different. So if you have a cookie cutter way of doing it, are you really, does it then become about your brand and your thing more than it does the moment? Um, now that said, I, I do think there are many times where organically stuff can happen. Um, and I probably have certain turns of phrase in other sports, uh, mostly in basketball that I will use quasi frequently, but not every time that same situation happens. Um, I'm not saying I would never do it. I think if the right thing came about, I, I would. If it were fun and the, the fans liked it, the player liked it, and I, I would be open to it. But it hasn't come up for me that I felt the right symmetry of this fits. I'm going to use this a lot. And I don't know that I'd ever use anything every single time. It's a fascinating dynamic, and it's something I don't think a lot of people like consciously like think about. But you're right, where it's like I've talked to a couple of broadcasters, and they said the same thing that you do. Like each one is different. You know, the moments are different, but that doesn't that kind of feel like something that like, you know, Hawk Harrelson, like, or just like Gary Thorne or like people that are like a generation or two beyond behind us. I feel like it even just like sports center, you know, everybody back then had like a catchphrase too. I, I feel like that's a dying art to have just like your signature, like, you know, get up ball stretch. <laughs> like There's not there, there. And plus there's not that, not that many ways you can describe a home run being hit too. I feel like that's the other thing. Yeah, I, I think with each person, it, it's really a it's a very personal choice. This is one of the more subjective enterprises you can have. What one person likes, someone else is going to hate. There is nobody who will ever be universally beloved, ever. And similarly, I don't think there will be anybody who's universally hated. Uh, it, it's going to be a divisive thing. Uh, so I, I think for anybody that's doing it, you ultimately, and I, I say this as a preamble to all demo feedback I ever give young announcers, is uh, no criticism is gospel. So solicit it, ask for it, take something from it, and lift what you like. Lift what you think fits you and how you want to present yourself and how you think it should go. And then I caution, if you hear the same criticism every single time, you probably want to listen to those people. Uh, but you usually won't, and it's going to be pure personal choice. That's a great point. Yeah, learning how to accept criticism of yourself, it's a skill in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Being able to take what other people say and, you know, not beat yourself up about it, but, you know, take, like you said, take a little bit out of each one. Um, yeah, like, do you, I'm sure broadcasters come up to you for advice or, like, what's, what's like, kind of, like, another piece of advice that you would give to somebody that's like, hey, I'm, I'm young, I'm trying to get into the industry. Like, do you have a couple of things? I'm sure you could ask about this now, being in a position of prominence. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say with each sport, like on a technical level, it varies by sport. Uh, the number one thing I suggest, though, is that you have to just connect with people. And I, I try to skew them away from because for many of us and I did all the same things like I'm not like different. I'm not better than or anything like that. We want to connect with play by play people because they're doing the jobs that we want to do. How'd you get there? What do you think? Uh, and there's value in that. You can learn from that. You can connect with some people to some extent. But I try to point out to them like, hey, as I've done this longer and now I'm on the other side of this more frequently, um, I would just caution you that most play by play people are literally unable to help you. They have no hiring authority whatsoever. And the limited few that maybe could have some kind of influence probably don't want to help you. They don't really know you yet. Uh, they might have other mentees or allegiances. They might be threatened by you. And they don't want to help you. And they, they might skew you in the wrong direction purposefully because like, hey, this guy lives in my area. He's younger. He's cheaper. He might be better than me. I'm not going to help this guy. I'm going to send him elsewhere. Connect instead with people with titles like uh, manager or director of talent, uh, associate AD for external relations. Um, try to connect with an agency if you're at that right point and you have enough video experience. Go to the decision makers that are hiring for jobs. And while you're in school, is the ideal time because you don't write them saying, I want a job. That, that's just going to be a turnoff instantly and they probably don't have a job. 
write them instead and say, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. I'm writing you for this specific reason. Do your homework. Try to connect with people that you really look up to in some way because of something about their background or their accomplishment. Ideally, somebody that shares a geographic similarity with you. And I want your feedback. Can I talk to you for five minutes? And just talk to them. Don't ask them for the job. Just get stories from them, get a few ideas from them, and then it's on you to stay in touch with that person. That's how you get jobs. And it's in the aggregate. It's not going to happen the next day. It's bluntly going to take years. It could take five to 10 years, but you got to put in that time to sincerely, not like a used car salesman. Yeah. And that's why I try not to use the word networking because that feels slimy to me. And, and yeah. I wasn't good at that because I didn't like that. And it took me a while to realize, John, your tape doesn't matter. Most jobs, when they're posted, are already filled. They already have a short list. You need to just meet people. And when I made a conscious decision to do that, I can directly look and see when I had little jumps in my career as a result. And that, to me, is the number one thing that I, I implore young announcers to do. Listen to yourself. Solicit feedback. Yes. Try to get better. Excuse me. You should do that. But instead of using that other free time to contact announcers, contact people who hire announcers and connect with them in some way. We interrupt this episode to bring you a word from the official sponsor of Not For Long Media and the Breaking Bass podcast, the original Fudge Kitchen. It is a staple of the Jersey Shore with six locations in Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, Stone Harbor, and Ocean City. The original Fudge Kitchen makes all of their fudge in-store guaranteeing a delicious product, so stop by and let them know that Not For Long Media and Breaking Bass sent you. Check them out online at fudgekitchenswithans.com as they are shipping fudge and sweet treats all across the country. Now back to the episode. Yeah, I've never I've never heard it from that perspective, but you're absolutely right. You're you're in a unique position though. You're you're one of 30 people doing what you do, major league baseball play-by-play voice. I feel like play-by-play voices, they're kind of like Supreme Court justices where it's like almost like a position for life. You don't there's not a lot of turnover in what you do. Guys will do it for 30 years easy because you're just talking. Was that something that was kind of like a daunting thing to think about when you're coming up, maybe having aspirations of doing what you're doing now where you're like, I would love to do this but there's a finite number of jobs and they rarely come open. Yeah. To, yeah. To many extents. Um, for me though, when I was coming up, I, and I sincerely meant it then um, I wanted to work at the highest level I could, whatever that meant radio, TV, pro college, big market, small market, wh- whatever network national versus I just wanted to do games and I wanted to do multiple sports. I like multiple sports. I like the different rhythms and cadences that each one has, the, the nuance to it, the cultures within them. I like that variety. Um, and yeah, so I would share with you that uh, it's probably when I was in my later 30s. Um, yeah, I had a solid career to that point. I was very happy. If that were the zenith of where I reached and I didn't go beyond that, I would have been satisfied. Because if I told 20-year-old me that that happened, I wouldn't have believed it. Uh, but at the same time, I looked at bluntly, uh, to your point, I agree with the Supreme Court justice idea. Uh, they're highly coveted jobs. They rarely turn over. They're very difficult to achieve. And even moreover, first time lead announcers, generally, with minimal exception, don't come about at 50 plus. And even moreover, you know, each progressive year younger than that, it's slightly more possible, but increasingly in this last generation, we're seeing folks get those jobs in their 30s a lot. So when I'm in my late 30s, I said to myself, if I don't achieve this goal by the time I'm 50, it's probably never happening. Could I fill in? Sure. Yeah. But would that be my main job? Probably not. And if I don't achieve that by the time I'm 50, then the other work that I'm doing, I'm probably going to have to and want to work until I'm 70 And that work is probably going to go away in that time, if not entirely, at least be diminished. Rights are going to change. My bosses will be dead or go to other places because many of them were older than I was. So what am I going to do? Because I don't want a career pivot when I'm 53. Uh, So my plan was I wanted to get either a Major League Baseball or an NBA job with a team. That was my goal. And if I did not achieve that by the time I was 50, my plan was to go work in academia, in college in some way, to help groom the next generation. I would still do my announcing. I would still work for CBS. I'd still work for Westwood One. I would still fill in on the big league games that I had achieved at that point. Um, but recognizing that it's there's a finite window that's going to go away or be diminished in some way without my choice. 
and then I have something else to do. And they would work kind of, you know, uh, almost symbiotically with each other because then I'm in the field and I'm advising young kids. Um, and that, that was my plan. And I already took steps toward that um, before the, the Reds opportunity came up, that that was my plan if this didn't happen. Before you did get the Reds job, though, I, I was reading about this. It was during the pandemic, I believe. You know, I think there was a prolonged period of maybe uncertainty in your professional career. Um, how did you kind of stay ready for that, for the opportunity when it did come, but like still trying to be positive and not try to like, you know, fall into some of the pitfalls that may come along with it? Uh, well, for me, it, it directly coincided with the pandemic. So the uh, I went almost a calendar year with no work, no income. Uh, that was that was pretty scary. That was that was terrible. Uh, and I applied to like work at convenience stores and supermarkets and I couldn't get people to call me back. I couldn't get an interview anywhere, um, let alone anything within the industry. But sports stopped and there were no opportunities. Um, and it, it was depressing. It was mentally and emotionally a really, really hard time. Um, but I had some people within the industry, uh, two basketball analysts that I work with a lot, a guy named Chris Walker, former uh, head coach of Texas Tech, works at CBS, uh, a guy named Tim Doyle, a Northwestern grad who worked at BTN that works at CBS, does some NBA coverage with Turner. We talked on the phone at least once a week, sometimes three, four times a week. And uh, just to try to like be positive. And they helped me a ton during that time. Uh, and it was probably a couple of months into the pandemic um, when I, I hit my low point. I'd go for long walks every day and I would just think, what can I do? What should I do? Who should I be contacting? And then it just kind of clicked one day. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, get on the computer and start writing people. This is the perfect. Nobody's doing anything. This is the time to try to reach out to as many people as possible. And <coughs> excuse me, that's what I did. And uh, and I, I tried to begin it with something that was just positive and easy for me, which is I wrote thank yous to anybody who had ever helped me. Anybody who had helped me along the way. Dave Sims, voice of the Seattle Mariners. He was one of the first big league guys to give me a tape review. He had gotten off the treadmill on the road with the Mariners. I'm sitting at my desk in Wilmington, Delaware at my A-ball job. He spent an hour on the phone with me going over my tape, going over my background, going over ideas, super positive and appreciative. Uh, Gary Cohen with the Mets sent me one of the greatest single email critiques that I ever got. And I, I reached out to every person that had helped me just to say thanks and to check in on them. And uh, yeah, it, it makes me emotional thinking about it, you know, because the, these were people that were so kind and so generous and, uh, and it, it helped me a ton. It really did. And then, and that kind of let me get the ball rolling to then try to take that next step. Like, let me write a bunch of people I don't know. And I wrote every team in Major League Baseball. I wrote every team in the NBA. I wrote every producer name that I could find, knowing my hit rate was going to be low. But if I find one, yes. And it, it didn't directly happen to what turned out to be the Reds job. That, that kind of happened later. Um, but I, I tell young people this all the time. I firmly believe it. I, I do think there is a sense of karma in this world. I really do. I don't think while you're striving for goal A, you're always going to achieve it. I think that's kind of storybook. But I do think that if you're not striving for A, then B or C don't happen. I do think you need to be your own instigator and motivator. And I do think if you put in enough effort long enough, something happens that will be fitting and right and help you achieve what you want. That's an incredible story, John. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. That was and when the Reds opportunity did come up before the 2021 season, like that's a pretty short turnaround time though. Like to, to learn everything there is to know about Cincinnati Reds baseball, all the history, the tradition, like what was your, what was that crunch time process? Like trying to get acclimated before you actually did start calling games for the Reds. Well, uh, first of all, I would caution, I still don't nearly know everything about Cincinnati Reds history. And that's something that I'll, I'll continue to try to achieve for the rest of my working life. Um, but yeah, that, that is a, it's a big undertaking. It helped um, specifically for me that two of my partners when I was in AAA, one of my closest and dearest friends, Darren Hedrick, we met when we were in A-ball. He now does baseball games and women's hoops at the University of Kentucky. He's part of their football broadcast crew. He does some SEC network stuff. Um, we were together at AAA for three years, and he's a Tennessee native and graduate who grew up a Reds fan. And my first AAA partner, who was my intern there, Andrew Kappas, who now works for the Pirates AAA team in Indianapolis, grew up in northern Kentucky as a Reds fan. Um, and then I started to realize, as, as this job you know, came about, how many people I knew that were from or in Cincinnati. 
there were a lot. So I could lean on them. I could call them be like, all right, well, what do you think the fan base would think about this? Well, what are the short list of books that you suggest I read? What are moments that I need to familiarize myself with? And, uh, and that helped a ton. And then all the people that are on our crew um, and along with the organization, uh, the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum is one of the elite, amazing experiences in baseball. Nobody salutes and recognizes uh, the achievements of their franchise the way the Reds do with that place and with how often they bring back their stars and the, the meaning that those players have to the folks that are in the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, so all I have to do is literally go right next door from the stadium and there is an enormous multi-leveled museum to the Reds history that each year focuses on a different you know area, puts a spotlight on something new. Uh, this year it's it's on the, the women and girls that have made the Reds the Reds throughout the, their history. Uh, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I'm in Arizona with the team. I will once the season gets underway. Uh, but that's an incredible resource. And, and I bet just like – I bet that was a, an enjoyable process though, like trying to get up to speed with everything. Like I, I'm sure maybe I'm going back to like the, the research and analytical mindset that you once had in college. Like I'm sure like – was there a party that enjoyed trying to like get up to speed and just try to like – this this is a place that I hopefully will call my home for a long time. Let me try to know everything I know uh, can know about it beforehand. Oh, definitely. I mean, and I say this frequently to uh, to young announcers is that you I think have to have at least an understanding, if not a love for prep in general in this job. Um, you know, bluntly, I, I work on average over the last fifteen years. It's probably one hundred and eighty to two hundred events a year of various sports for different outlets. At least a third of those games are not good. Yeah, they're not close. They're not competitive. Ugly things happen. Um, the, so then what are you doing? Like if the game is not interesting or is ugly in some way, depending upon the sport and whatnot, um, the rest is a combination of your personality, your analyst personality, and the prep you did, the stories you have. What'd you learn? What are you trying to share with people? What are we looking for? What are we anticipating? What are we reacting to and in what fashion? Um, so I actually get as excited, sometimes more, for the prep than I do for certain events that I do, uh, in part because I kind of think, well, this might not be a great game, um, but I love learning these stories about these people, and I, I think there's a high chance I'm going to get to use more of them than I would in another game, um, and I, I love doing that. I love meeting with, talking to, and learning about people. That's absolutely but your first opening day in 2021, did you have a moment before maybe the mics turned on or did you have a moment to just kind of take it all in and reflect on the journey that you had taken to get there? Um, so in Cincinnati, opening day is like a, a citywide holiday. Uh, generally, people over the years would take their kids out of school. There's a giant parade. There's literally a huge party in the street. Um, I didn't get to witness that firsthand because I had to be at the ballpark for a lot of stuff. Um, but there's there was so much happening that first day and I had so much excitement and nerves and um, it didn't really click for me until right after our open aired. So uh, most of our opens are pre-recorded. Um, we'll do it with the, you know, the field as the backdrop. So after our show goes hot or it goes on the air, you know, the truck tells us in our head, our headsets, all right, we're on the air and we can hear the music and we can see the logo fly and everything. And then the, that airs. Within about five minutes, I had 200 plus text messages and almost all of them were from people that I've known over the years. Some were close friends and family. Some were people I had to talk to in 10, 15 years. And it's a picture of me next to Barry Larkin doing the open. And it was like, holy cow. Like, when I saw that picture and I saw how many people, many of whom I, I, I never had a falling out with, we just didn't talk in a while recognized that and saw that and sent it that was like the holy cow kind of moment that it was like a, a dream realized i'm standing next to a man who's a living legend in the city who's a hall of famer an all-time great at a premium position doing a major league baseball game for the cincinnati reds it was it was unbelievable absolutely and i know like you mentioned like in that 2021 season, a lot of stuff was still conducted on zoom. So it might've been a little hard to like connect with some people around the organization. Like, you know, you're probably doing zoom call pre things with players, but um, in the time that you've been there though, I'm so curious, everybody that's connected with the reds. I always ask about Joey Votto because I feel like he's 
an underrated star in the game. I love that he's on social media now, like that we can, you know, find out more about like the personal side of Joey. But like, what what's your experience been like with him and, and just getting to like, you know, call his games and get to interact with him the last couple of years? Uh, well, last year he joined us in the booth multiple times. Uh, after he got shut down for the season with his uh, his injury and surgery, um, we got a lot of time to be together and watch games together. Um, he is one of the most interesting men I've ever met in my life. Um, he knows a, not a little bit. He knows a lot about almost everything. Um, he's as, as renaissance as they come. Um, his interests are varied. They're deep. They're eclectic, but they're interesting. Um, he's an incredibly smart, cerebral man who's able to break a lot of things down, but he also has an innate sense of passion and humanity about him. Um, he's, he's a thrill. Uh, he's, and I, I would echo what you're saying. I think he's an elite superstar. I think he is going to be the trendsetter for the hall of fame. Uh, I think many will follow, uh, that will be more rate stat driven than volume stat driven. Um, and I, I think he's the one that's going to knock that door down in a big way because he's had an outstanding career. Um, and I, I think he is a figure that um, I hope and think we're going to learn more about, yeah, even once he's away from the game, because he, he's really dedicated. Uh, he knows his body incredibly well. He is an incredibly hard worker. Uh, so while he's in uniform, he's going to be generally as laser focused as possible on playing. Um, I don't want his playing days to end. I want him to have a great season. I'd love for him to keep playing, but you know, he's a human being. They're going to end eventually. Whenever they do end, I hope and think we're going to get to know him even better and, and see the full tapestry of him as a person. Um, because I, I, I just think his observation is inside his feel um, is, is so unique and so spectacular um, that he's a great advocate for the sport. His monologue about the, the, the monopoly on the summer that baseball has was totally natural off the cuff. He's not reading a script. He's just reacting in the moment. And it was poetry. It was amazing. Uh, he, he's a treasure. He's an all-time treasure. I never want him to stop playing either. It's following him on social media. His like he's witty. He's funny. Like, and even just like on his Instagram, he'll you, the Renaissance man is a great way to describe it. I looked and he was just like playing chess with strangers in a park one day. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah, man That's of many Joey, interests. Man. That's Joey. <laughs> Do you think he would have a future if he decided to you know post playing career to to join a, a broadcast booth of some kind? I think he could do almost anything he wants, honestly. Um, yes, he would be spectacular if he if that's what he chose to do. Um, I would personally be surprised if he chose to do that on an everyday basis with a team. Um, I think his interests are so varied, and I, I could be wrong. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I would be surprised if he did 160 games a year. Yeah. But I could definitely see him doing something that is marketing, supporting, and talking the game, and I, I think it would be great. He, he has to mean so much to the city of Cincinnati being there his entire playing career. I love guys that stay one city for their entire career, like a Cal Ripken. But um, yeah, it's I'm excited to see what he does this year. His last full healthy season, I think it was a couple years ago. Excellent numbers. Guy yeah. can still hit. So um, very excited to see what 2023 holds for our guy, Joey. Yeah, I'm, I am right there with you every step of the way. As we kind of talk about, you know, wrapping up here, it's like, you know, some 2023 Cincinnati Reds storylines. Obviously, the team is still rebuilding. But what are some kind of the, the bright spots of this team that maybe people like myself who aren't necessarily Reds fans should, like, take note of or maybe pay more attention to? Uh, I think there's some really good young talent on this team. And I would include in that, you know, Jonathan India, Tyler Stevenson, you know, each going into year three full-time, India Rookie of the Year a couple of years ago, both look in great shape. Um, and, and I would forecast some strong showings from both. Uh, Tyler's going to divide time this year. He's not going to catch as much. Um, it, they'll, by design, have a breakdown every 10 games of how often he's catching at first base, DHing off day. Uh, and I think that's to try to get his bat in the lineup as often as possible. He's an excellent contact hitter who I think will have even more developing power, has a natural opposite way swing. Um, the three young starters are the bedrock. Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, Graham Ashcraft. Uh, we had a chance to see both Green and Lodolo over the weekend. Both looked excellent. Uh, Lodolo's changeup was filthy. Um, 
Hunter looks to be in tremendous shape. His command, uh, second and third inning, were excellent. Um, Alexis Diaz was a really fun find as a late game option. Edwin Diaz's brother to close out last year. He's got that same kind of funk, very similar delivery, uh, fastball slider combination, similar to his brother, uh, wipeout strikeout type stuff. And that next generation is on the rise. Uh, Christian Encarnacion Strand and Ellie De La Cruz have been the two biggest stars so far of the spring. Uh, but Matt McLean has played incredibly well. Spencer Steer, who came up last year after the trade with the Twins and played well, homered in his first game. Joey called the play-by-play of that when he was in the booth. Uh, he had a three-for-three day with a couple of smoke line drives. Has looked strong at third base. Um, I, I think that next wave of pitching is coming with guys like Connor Phillips and Levi Stout and Andrew Abbott. Uh, there is a lot of good young talent. So my 15 years in the minors, most of it was spent in Wilmington, Delaware. Most of that time they were a Royals affiliate. So the core of the back-to-back World Series teams, uh, Eric Cosmer, Salvador Perez, uh, Greg Holland, uh, Yordano Ventura, uh, Mike Moustakis, they were all on those teams. Danny Duffy, Mike Montgomery. Uh, and then I was with the Yankees for five years at AAA, and most of that core of the LCS team, Aaron Judge, Glaber Torres, Gary Sanchez, Luis Severino, Chad Green, all came through there. And Cincinnati right now feels like my runs with those two respective teams. There is uh, almost a gluttony of talent. There's overlap at positions. I think that creates competition. I think that gets the most out of players. Um, and I, I think this team is going to be interesting to watch every single day this year. And I, I don't think the gap is that long until they're significantly competing because they have some really, really good players. I like that's very well said and doing like looking like for 2023 red storylines for myself. It's it's you're right. It is. It is. Let the kids play the, the great starting like rotation they have. It's all very young. They're all talented. They also all throw very hard, which is great. Um, I did see. Yeah, I'm a big Spencer Steer guy now after doing some research. I've seen, you know, rookie of the year thrown around for him. Uh, a full season of him, though, wouldn't be wouldn't be too bad to watch at the hot corner, I feel like. No. And it's uh, and that's going to be one of the interesting elements of this team is who sticks where position wise, because there's redundancy. There's a lot of particularly middle infielders. Um, you know, Noel V. Marte looks to be in great physical condition. He's a natural shortstop who right now is playing more third base. Christian Encarnacion Strand is more of a natural third baseman who's playing more first base right now. Matt McLean's a natural shortstop who's playing more second base right now. Um, and then you also have Ellie De La Cruz, who for now is listed as a shortstop. Will he stay there? How will he hit? Um, and then where does Jonathan India fit in? Um, the, the gaps come more in the outfield. There's, there's not as much organizational depth there, which would lead me to think at some point you're either plugging with free agency by some of the money that would be liberated after the season and or maybe you trade one of the prospects where you have two or three guys at one position at one position and go get somebody that plays a different position it's a, it's a good point if you're a fan of this team like the win-loss record may not be what you want it is but want it to be but like as a baseball fan sometimes it's more fun rooting for the young guys because you know that like you're right. In two or three years, this will, this will turn into something. And then you'll, you can say, you can, you know, I was there for, you know, when the times were bad. Now the times are good again. So um, there's a lot, there's a lot to look forward to in Cincinnati. I did have a couple quick rapid fire questions for you to kind you of wrap it. up here. Um, so being a broadcaster probably has to come along with saying some very difficult names to pronounce. When you think back to all your years and all the names that you said into a microphone, is there a couple like, difficult or fun to say like names that like come to the top of your mind? Uh, the biggest thing I would say, and I'll, I'll tighten this up. There's a young man at my college whose last name was Stazuski, and I was in classes with him and I knew his name was uh, Stazuski. So his senior day, they're playing a conference team and I get a tap on the shoulder from this young man's dad saying, Hey, great job on the games. Uh, really sorry, but you know, we are Polish and the last name is actually pronounced Staszewski. I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I, I know your son. I know he has said his last name is Staszewski, but I will call him Staszewski. So I do so. His cousin, father's brother, same last name, is on the other team. So I call him Staszewski. At the end of that half inning, I get a tap on the shoulder of that dad who says, hey, listen, I'm really sorry, but you know, our father passed. My brother started doing this genealogical research and discovered that in the old country it was said that way, but our entire lives we've been Stazuskis. So he and his kid can pronounce their name however they want, but me and my kid, we are Stazuskis. So for the rest of the game, 
two kids, father's brother, same last name. I pronounce the two last names differently. That's a great point. Yeah, some of the some of the names in baseball where you're right, they have to kind of like Polish or like what is it Mark Zep Mark Zepchinski or whatever you get some Z's into a name. It's like as a broadcaster, I feel like I don't envy that because you're right. I, I would I would feel so bad. That's like the I would feel so bad if I mispronounced somebody's last name. <laughs> yes, I, I always try to. Uh, so often players just want to be part of the team and whatever people call them, they just willingly accept because they, they want to get along and it comes from a good place. But I always frame it as how do you introduce yourself? How do your parents say your name? Uh, and then I try to make sure that I get it right. But ultimately I do whatever the player tells me he or, or she would want me to do. Absolutely. Cincinnati skyline, chili. Are we in or out in Particularly yeah. the the all the way cheese coney. That's that's the way I, I like it the most. So the hot dog with the mustard, the onions, the cheese, and the chili all in. Was there a visual aspect that maybe you had to overcome for the maybe the first time? Because that's that's always the thing that gets me. I'm sure it's delicious, but there there is that optical. I have to look at this before I eat it. No, I, I come from a mostly Irish Catholic family in New York, and my grandmother used to make a dish she called garbage which was a little bit of everything that was left over during the week, all mushed together in one pile. Um, and I, I thought it was delicious then. And I, no, not at all. The visual doesn't scare me as long as I know it tastes good and it does. And I'm, I'm going to town. I'm, I, I like a meal. <laughs> um, going around the major league baseball, you get to go to some, some really cool parks some really cool visiting parks. Do you have a favorite and a least favorite broadcast booth around baseball? Uh, the least favorite is Washington. We're incredibly high. It, we're so yeah. detached from the field. I'd rather be in a studio, honestly. Um, and I wind up just watching the monitor the whole time. My favorite outside of Cincinnati, I love San Francisco. I think it's amazing. I think their fans are great. I love the smell of the garlic fries. I love the view of the bay and the giant glove and the Coke bottle. And it's it's awesome. I love going there. I want to say we had I asked Tom McCarthy that same exact question. I think you both have the same exact like favorite, least favorite. I didn't realize how high that you get, they had you in, in Nationals Park, but I think everybody I've talked to is just ne nobody's like I like that. <laughs> no, it's uh, the ballpark's fine. I like the stadium, but for broadcasting, we are way, way, way too high, way too far away. <laughs> I think because they had to put so many cool luxury suites in there below you. Yeah, it's they uh, they they kind of forgot about you guys. Um, the answer's always money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have two more for you. You were in minor league baseball for a, a large portion of your career. They have some of the most like creative like promotions and ways to get people to come out to these games. Do you, is there one that kind of stands out or a memorable like promotion or theme night or anything from your time in the minors? So uh, the Wilmington Blue Rocks, the team I worked for for a long time, they every time they score a run at a home game, they have a giant stalk of celery called Mr. Celery that comes out to song two by Blur, the woohoo song, and does a dance. And over the years, sometimes players are in that outfit and. Groundskeepers are in the outfit. The you know management with the team is in there. Um, there's no story. There's no background. When it happens, for, when it first began, they would not even acknowledge the thing occurred when people would ask about it. At one point, there was a celery section of mostly students from Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania, that would bring stalks of celery and wear green shirts and chant celery's name every time the Blue Rocks scored. And that kind of nonsense is exactly the brilliance of minor league baseball. I loved it. I've been to a I've been to a Blue Rocks game and I was just so confused. No no explanation. <laughs> he just kind of comes out of a door. He does like two seconds. It goes right back in. It's, <laughs> That's exactly it. That's Mr. C. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, it's just weird, kind of fun, quirky. Like that's th there's just some things in minor league baseball that you can kind of like have a little more leeway with. And I love that they get like the Padres AAA affiliate. I remember when they had Robinson Cano there. He was wearing a SpongeBob SquarePants like uniform jersey night. It's like it's minor league baseball. You can, it's yep. It's the best. Um, last question for you. Uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, advice that like you would give to, to, you know, young broadcasters and you would give out, but what is the best piece of advice that somebody's ever given to you? Uh, wow. That's uh, that's pretty big. Um, I would say, uh, probably the best advice I've ever had is to in baseball specifically, uh, since we are on this pod podcast, um, Gary Cohen gave me advice about uh, how baseball, I'm trying to remember the turn of phrase. He said it was uh, a game of 
building slow rhythms and languid phrasing. And I had to look up what half the words meant. And, um, and what he was saying was uh, to not try to overstuff the call, but to still make sure there's a lot of meat in there and to make it poetic without excessive rhyming. Um, and there was a beauty in how we framed it. Uh, and I think he's an excellent, excellent baseball game caller. And, uh, and that really stuck with me. And, and kind of interpreting that for each person of what that means to you and how you do that. Um, and just being hyper aware of knowing your audience and what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve um, with, with a, a short but very intense turn of phrase he made me think a lot in a way that I hadn't before. And I still do. That's very powerful advice. You're right. I would have to look up half of those words. That that, that's <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's an incredible uh, way to describe it. But th John, this has been, speaking of incredible, I'm just going to keep using that word because this, that's what it is. I, your story is incredible. This, this interview has been great. Um, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time and coming on here tonight. Um, I think people are going to get a lot of value listening to what we talked about today. Um, best of luck to you know you and the, and the reds this season i'm gonna be tuning into some of these games here i'll have to find a way to watch it maybe get the mlb.tv going but um yeah this has been great thank you so much for coming on here thank you for having me i appreciate it good luck to you and to the pod and before we get out of here a special thank you to the band stick figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music Wait up.